Zephaniah wrote, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Listen to this. What do you think about God? How do you perceive God? That's the most important thought you'll ever have in your life. And I think that we so often think of Him as some cruel, hard, angry, vengeful, unmerciful being. I think we do. And we're afraid. Wrongly afraid. Listen to what Zephaniah said about God. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When's the last time you thought, God's singing over me? God's singing over His people. Far from a cruel taskmaster, harsh in judgment, unmerciful in His ways. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. He is singing over His people. He is mighty. Save. Let's pray together. Father, we have these thoughts. They come from our past. They come from our present. They come to us because we're fallen and because we, we're prideful and because we've been abused in our life, because of our earthly fathers who have failed to show your love, because of bosses who have been taskmasters rather than loving and gentle because of the disappointments of life and because of the physical struggles we've faced, we think wrong thoughts about you. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. And I just thank you for the sweetness of your word. In a place like Zephaniah, in a small little place in the Bible, a hidden treasure. God, help us to think of you exulting over us and singing. Help us to think of you mighty to save. Help us to remember and recall that you're in our midst. You are the king who is not far from his people, but has come and lived with his brethren so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and that he might share the inheritance with mere mortals. Jesus, this is you. You are our King. You are our Lord. You are our brother. You are our all in all without you. We're destined to have wrong thoughts, wrong actions. But with you, we're destined for glory. Help us now in these moments. By your Spirit, guide us into your Word. Teach us that we might know you and that we might think right thoughts about you and that we might leave this place proclaiming and celebrating you 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Amen. You may be seated. And uh, we'll be in John chapter 17. We're headed back into John now. We had our break and we covered a lot of different things. And I, I, I want to take a, just a minute before we get into John 17 just to do a couple things. First of all, um, I want to thank you for your response to the last few messages and your honest thoughts, uh, your encouragement, your, uh, your questions, your um, challenges. Um, I, I, I want to thank you. I, honestly, uh, you know, you, you preach messages and you wonder if anybody's listening. And last week, I, I feel like people were listening. People, people were perked up. And, that, and I appreciate that. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And secondly, the most important thing that I just want to say, that I don't, I don't say nearly enough, and that is that I love you. I really do. I love you. It is a great joy to serve with you, to just be a part of a people like Grace Fellowship. Um, you know, as I prayed this week and thought about you and prayed for you, um, my heart was just just overwhelmed with your faces, with your words, with experiences we've had together, um, with failures that I've committed and you've committed. I mean, I was just overwhelmed with the sense of privilege just to be with you. And I don't tell you that near enough. I take you for granted. And for that, I, I am so sorry. It's my fallenness, my failure, unexcusable. But just want to take the time just to say I love you. I really do. It is a joy to serve here and to serve a risen King, Jesus, with you. With you. And I look forward to the future. I'm excited about the future. I don't know all the ins and outs of exactly how God's going to do what He's doing, but I do feel like... I do sense that God is doing something. God is on the move. And we're in the business of finding out what He's doing and joining Him there. Okay? When I want to create a bunch of things and uh, try, to, try to whip something up so we all feel good. We are in earnest prayer. We want you to pray with us that we might know what God's doing, where He's doing it. We might join Him as He's doing it. And so, uh, so that's the encouragement that we need to leave with is, is uh, God's afoot, God's a move, God's working. And we got the privilege, we have the great privilege of working together with Him. John chapter 17. As we get into this uh, sermon series, uh, simply titled, The High Priestly Prayer. Uh, again, I'm not uh, trying to get bonus points for creativity. It is what it is. It is the High Priestly Prayer. Often we call the Lord's Prayer that... A prayer which Jesus taught on two occasions. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is recorded as teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and saying, When you pray, do not pray like the Gentiles and the heathens who lift up loud voices and many words to impress, but rather, when you pray, go into the inner closet and lift your voice to God who hears you, your Father, and pray like this, Our Father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be them, your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, our debts, as we forgive those who have committed debts against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. 
He also taught that same prayer on another occasion. He had called His disciples. He had brought them near. He had singled out the twelve and He had sent them out to do the works of the ministry. And they came back. And they're performing miracles. And they're casting out demons. And they're... They're interchanging with Christ over these events. In the midst of that, he teaches at the mountain. About 25,000 people gathered. You know the story. A couple of loaves of bread, a few fish, and Jesus calls it dinner. Right? He lifted up his head, the Bible says, to heaven. And he prayed aloud that God would give them food. And bless the food. Thank you for the food. And much to the amazement, not only of the crowd, but to the disciples... I don't know exactly how it happened. I got two theories. It either, while he was praying, started growing. Okay, that's one theory. I don't know if it's right or wrong. I just, I think, and that would cause the response, right? Whoa! Something about that prayer he's praying. That's awesome. A few loaves turn into a bunch of loaves, and a little fish turn into big fish. That's awesome. Right? Or it could have happened like this. He prayed, nothing happened. They thought, this is going to be fine. You know? This little bit of food for that many people. Yeah. Here, Peter, you take this loaf. James, you take that loaf since y'all are his favorites. Here's some fish for you, John. Y'all go give it to him, right? I mean, can't you hear their amazement? That on this theory, it would look like this. Loaves of bread. They walk out to the crowd. The crowd takes a piece of bread. Takes off the loaf. Takes from the fish. None's gone. Something different about this fish and about this loaf that Jesus prayed over. It could have been anything. I don't know. And they ate, and as they ate, it didn't disappear. It's just still there. I just took. A, I knew I took a bite, but it's not gone. And then they eat, and it's not. It's still there. And it, they eat, and it's still there until they're full, and then they say it's leftovers. We don't, they're starving children in China. Let's don't throw the food out. Go get the baskets, fill them up. Twelve of them, bring them back to me. Right? I don't know exactly how it happened, but they, they knew. They made a connection. Jesus prayed, and we got lots of food out of a little. Then that's over, and he dismisses the crowd, and he goes up and prays, and they're on the stormy sea. And Jesus comes walking on the water. Right? And... He gets into the boat after the event with Peter, and we overlook it. He calms things. He speaks, and the wind stops, and the waves go silent. He prayed, and nature responded. God stopped the waves. God stopped the wind. I mean, his prayers are effective. His prayers are not just shallow religious utterances. They're half something's happening. And from that, in Luke chapter 11... As Luke records it, after multiplying the food a couple times, after calming the storm, after casting out demons, after healing blind people, all through the process of praying, the disciples who went out in work work, came back frustrated saying, teach us how to pray like that. And then he gave them the same prayer that's recorded for us in Matthew 6. Two times the same prayer is recorded. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's probably better to call it the Disciples' Prayer. That's how Jesus told us to pray. We're not going to have a lesson on that, but He really did. He told us, this is how you pray. That's not at all what's going on in John 17. Jesus is not instructing anybody on how to pray 
Jesus is praying. This is the longest recorded prayer of Christ in the Bible. This is the longest we know He prayed. It begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, where He left under the cover of darkness, withdrew from them, and prayed. I mean, at the very beginning of His ministry, He's seen as praying. He prays throughout. We know it says He does, but we don't get the recorded prayers often. Just snippets of other prayers. But this prayer we see in its fullness Recorded for us at the end of his life, in the upper room, the setting, he's just taught chapters 13 through 16 in John, okay? And when he comes to the end of his teaching, he, the verse in chapter 17, verse 1 says what? He lifted his head towards heaven and began to pray. Now, that posture of prayer might be, catch you off guard, I know it. Catches me off guard. But this is a normal way to pray. Right? The, re- the religious culture that we live in, how do you pray? Eyes closed, head bowed, and we pray. Right? Nothing wrong with that. It's a good way to pray. In their culture, when one came before the Father... In an attitude of celebration and victory, he lifted his head unto heaven, eyes open, gazing, arms extended, hands receiving grace. Our Father, which art heaven, you know, that that would be the way they prayed. Head up, eyes open. This is not the prayer of defeat. This is not a prayer of concern. This is not a prayer of of worry. This is a prayer of victory. It's a declaration before God and the disciples of what's about to happen at the cross. We're going to get his prayer of turmoil in Gethsemane. We get his prayer of victory in John 17. He's the victorious king. Now let's read it together. And I'm not going to preach it all today. This is a mini-series. This is Three separate sections, clear and distinct in, in, the, in the writing. John records it for us that Christ prays for himself. That's the first section, verses 1 through 5. Christ then prays for the disciples in verses 6 through 19. And then Christ prays for every believer of all time that would come post the disciples. From the disciples forward, he prays. For all of them in verses 20 through 26. Three distinct sections. We're going to cover the first section. But I want to read the prayer. I want to read the prayer with you. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people. Whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. 
And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given is from that that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you, gave, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you gave, have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we, are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become per- perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And immediately after saying these words, he arose with the disciples and went across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. It's the end of his teaching. You know, it was customary, and it still is, I guess, in some places where, where a man would give his last teaching and then he would pray a final prayer, a prayer to culminate all teaching, to bring to a close the stage of his ministry known as his teaching and miraculous ministry. Jesus prayed this prayer. It's a significant prayer. It's like entering in, as some commentators have said, it's like entering in to the mountain where Moses saw the burning bush. I think God would say to us, take off your feet, your feet, your shoes. (laughs) That would be an impossibility, right? Take off your shoes from your feet. 
For the ground with which, on which you stand is holy ground. We're on holy ground in this text. I don't pretend to have some corner market on all that this prayer is. But I do believe it's broken down into five petitions, five requests, five things that the high priest prays. First, he prays for himself, and then four requests are made on the disciples' half and on our behalf. Today, we're going to look at that first petition, which he made for himself. Glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world began. Glorify me. That was Christ's request. Now, there's three words, or three Three words we could say. Glory, that stand out in this first five verses. Glory, authority, and life. Glory, sovereign authority, and eternal life. Those things stand out. They, to me, when I look at the paragraph, they give us a framework to understand the whole paragraph. And so let's look at these words together in turn. Glory. Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you. Notice he repeats it over and over again. And then again in verse 4. I glorified you on earth and having, and having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory stands out. It's repeated over and over again. It comes from a very simple word, doxa. As we understand it. And the older word, which goes back further than doxa, is doka. And it means the character of a man. When attributed to God, it means a praiseworthy character of God. We don't think about glory that way. We think about glory as something we ascribe to God. But what we see in this passage and all through the Bible is glory is something which God possesses in and of Himself because of who He is. God is glorious. He's not being made glorious. He is glorious. There is a right statement we can make. And doxa is that newer word in the Greek that we, that we often look at. Paul uses it a lot. And it does mean, can mean, to praise to ascribe worth to something. To worship. That's where we get our word. Worship. We get a lot of our words here. Doxology. It's a word of praise, of worship. Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. Right thinking. Right? Heterodoxy. You don't hear that as much. But that word too comes from this idea of glory. It's to have... Contrary are different thoughts, not in keeping with the right thought, we might say. A different thought. We also know of paradox, a contradiction, an apparent impossibility. Two statements which don't go together. And so this word, doxa, glory, is all in our thinking, in our minds. We are very familiar with it. But I want to think about it with you in the context of Jesus' prayer here. Because I don't think what Jesus is talking about here is the idea of worshiping or ascribing glory. I believe it's that first type of glory which Jesus is talking about, the glory which He has 
in and of himself because he is God. At the beginning of the prayer, he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. We look at the reasons for glory. The reasons that Jesus asked for glory. First of all, he says, the hour has come. Glorify me because the hour has come. What hour is it? The hour has come that he might give his life to satisfy God's wrath against those that God will save and to take their sin and give to them his righteousness. The hour has come. Glorify your son. Second reason he asked for glory is that he might, Jesus Christ is asking for glory, that he might glorify God the Father. Not far from being um, defeated in this prayer, we see victory being spoken of in this prayer. Jesus isn't dreading the cross right here. There's dread and there's, there's angst in the garden. But in this moment, at the end of his teaching ministry, as he thinks about what God is about to accomplish through his death, at what he is about to accomplish through his death, the thoughts turn to glory. Glorify me because the hour has come. Glorify me so that I might glorify you. The moment of Jesus' greatest glory on this earth is at the cross. Have you ever thought about that? In what seems to be the worst moment of his life, in actuality, is the greatest moment of his life. The time has come. I'm giving my life a ransom for many to satisfy your wrath against them, that they might be your children. Now glorify me that I might glorify you. It's this glory which the thief on the cross, I think, saw. You remember the thieves on the cross? One of them had earthly eyes, and all he could see was that Jesus was hanging there, suffering like him. He must be guilty. I'm guilty. He must be guilty. And if he is God, he ought to save himself and us too. He didn't see the glory that was taking place. But God, in his infinite mercy, in his great love with which he loved us, in that moment, the other thieves... The scales fell from his eyes. And this guilty sinner, this one who had committed a crime and deserved punishment, looked on the Lamb of God and saw the glory of God. And Jesus is in this prayer saying, Glorify me so that you might be glorified, so that I might glorify you. The hour is here. Our time is here. It's, 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 it's not defeat. It's victory which he's praying. It's come. It's time. You're going to glorify yourself. This is our moment, he's saying to the Father. And in glorifying me, Father, you will be glorified. And that thief said, you fool, don't you see this is the Son of God? He saw the glory that was was present at the cross. And some of you have seen the glory that's present at the cross. Haven't you? You're entranced by it. You're captivated by His mercy and His love. You cannot get your mind away from the fact that God would have mercy on you. Jesus said, when you glorify me, Father, 
I will glorify you. He's speaking directly of his work on the cross. And his words are so true, aren't they? We're captivated by his glory as he hangs on that cross. In his moment of humiliation, he's exalted. In his greatest moment of pain, he wins the greatest of victories. What a beautiful, beautiful way to open the prayer. Father, the hour has come. Our time is now. Glorify me so I might glorify you. And God has answered the prayer. We often wonder, what's God going to do in prayer? Why should I pray? God's going to do what he wants. May I just encourage you with this? Jesus prayed and God answered his prayer. God answered his prayer. God is in the business of answering prayer, accomplishing his will through that method of prayer. And so we see his glory. Two reasons for him asking for glory. Because the hour has come. And because he desires that the Father be glorified through his receiving glory. And then third reason for asking for glory. As we focus on this word glory. It comes back again in verse 5. With a slight change. And I'm going to emphasize the change. His desire is to have the glory Not only of God's character, which he always did have. He always had that. But he wants the glory which he left when he came to earth. He wants the Shekinah glory. Look what he says. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What glory did Jesus have? Before the world existed. Hold your place in John 17. And turn with me to John chapter 1. Because he had. A very specific type of glory. The Hebrew people understood Shekinah glory. To be the light. Which emanated from God. The light. The presence of God. Wherever God was. This glory shone. We see it in Exodus a lot, don't we? At the burning bush, Moses gets just a, just a picture, just a short display of the Shekinah glory in the bush. The light, the holiness of God. Moses then gets a, a, a dose of this glory when he goes on Mount Sinai to receive the law. Remember when he came down, what did the people say? Moses, you're going to have to cover your face. You scare us. He had been in the presence of God's Shekinah glory, this special glory which God has coming from Him, this light, this radiance, as the writer of Hebrews says it is, this radiant light which shines, as Paul says, in the face of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's the glory which Jesus is saying, give me that glory again which I had with you before the world began. He didn't have that glory always present with Him in this life. He had the glory of the character of God. He was always in possession of that glory. But that Shekinah glory which he enjoyed with God the Father before time began, he's now saying, Father, give me that glory again. Father, give me that glory again. And we see it in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's the glory he wants. 
face-to-face communion. In the presence of your radiance, Father. That's where I want to be again. Now, he will get there, Philippians chapter 2 says. Philippians chapter 2, that famous verse on humiliation. He humbled himself and came in the form of a man, a servant, and he died an awful death on the cross. And verses 9 through 11 say what? And now that he has died that awful death, what did God do? He raised him up. And glorified him and gave him the name which is above all other names. That at that name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As we look at the first part of this prayer, as Jesus is praying for himself, what he wants is glory. He has the glory of God's character. He's always had that. And now he's saying, God, give me again that glory which I had with you before we created the earth. The Shekinah, the radiance. And God has answered the prayer. He is highly exalted above every name. And he shines with the radiance of the Father. And some of you are longing for that. Aren't you? You're longing to see him face to face. When John says that in his epistle to his, to his church, when John says that to the letter to his church, don't mistake what he's saying. He's saying, when we're there with him, we will see him face to face and we will know him as we are known. What is it that John is wanting and desiring? The same thing Jesus wanted and was desiring. John is saying, an example, following the example of Jesus, at the end of his life to his church, What I'm longing for and what I want you to long for is to be in His radiance, face to face, knowing Him as we are known, in perfect communion. That's what I want. Isn't that what you want? Or do you just want the secondary gifts that He can give you? Let's be honest. Do you want to know Him face to face? To be in the presence of His radiance? Or do you just want the things He can give you? When I look at my life, I find myself, just being honest and open with you, I find myself wanting the things and not Him. I want the things. A happy marriage. Possessions. Friends, success, heaven. I want the things. Jesus doesn't ask for things. Jesus asks for God. God asks for God. God, give me that glory again, which I had with you before the world began. And in the example, John, having heard this prayer at the end of his life, as he writes to his church, he says, that's what I want. I want God face to face. I want to see His glory. It's not a new prayer, is it? Because in Exodus chapter 33, what did Moses say? After being with God, he said, God, show me what? Your glory. Is that your desire? Is that what you want? Is that what your life is about? 
If not, it can be about that. Today, it can be about that. It's as simple as believing in Christ. Repenting of self and believing in Christ. We're going to get to that later in the prayer. But I can't help but introduce it here. So we see this first word, glory. And then we move to sovereign authority in verse 2. Sovereign authority. Since you have given him authority, talking about himself over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Sovereign authority. God gave Jesus authority over all flesh. It's universal. There is no human outside of God's authority through Christ. Christ's authority which was given to him by God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's not becoming that. He is that. The question is not, will you submit to Him? That's not the question. The question is, when will you submit? And in what manner will you submit? Because right now, if you can hear my voice, it means you're alive. Maybe barely. But you are. And today is the day to submit to Him. Because in this life, to those who submit to Him, meaning they repent of their own selves, their own ways, their own sin, their own rebellion, their own concept of what it means to be God, they repent of everything that they are and believe in Jesus Christ, that submission leads to glorification, eternal life with Him, a relationship with the God of the universe that is available through Christ today. But he's not just the king of those who submit to him. Because the Bible clearly teaches that there's coming a day when you will be submitted to him. You may live a life of a hundred years in rebellion to him. But in his time, in his day, all men, all flesh will submit. Bow the knee. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The difference is an eternity. Those who willingly, lovingly, through repentance and faith submit are brought to glory. Those who are submitted are banished. He is the sovereign authority. They're banished to an eternity of punishment, of hell, of reaping the benefit of their sin. That's the reality. It sounds harsh. It may be hard. But even in his last prayer, Jesus says, God, you gave me authority over all flesh. But he's not only universally in authority. Look at what he says. He's specifically in authority over those that God has given him. You gave me authority over all flesh to give eternal life. Some people read the verse and stop. To eternal life. You give, to give eternal life. He's the great Santa Claus in heaven. 
But the rest of the verse is instrumental in our understanding of what it means that He gives eternal life. Because it's not universal. It's very specific. I have authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. He's sovereign over salvation. And I know in our natures we rebel against this idea. We kick against it. We don't like it. We don't think it's fair. It's unjust. And yet it's biblical. It's a fact. It's not up for debate. Jesus in his prayer says, glorify me. Because the hour has come. Glorify me that I might glorify you. And God, give me the glory which I had with you before the world. That Shekinah glory which I dwelled in, in the Holy of Holies. Give that to me. You've given me authority. Sovereign authority over all men, everywhere. And I have given eternal life to everyone you gave to me. This is all about grace. Far from being a hard verse... A fearful verse. This is a verse that should encourage us. Grace. Look at all the grace that's being done here. You gave me, which is grace, authority over all men, to give, which is grace, eternal life, to all of those you gave me. It's all about grace. Here's the... Here's one way to look at salvation. It's just one way. There are other ways. But I just want to emphasize this one because this verse brings it out. Before time began, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelled in perfect community. They had no needs. They had no wants. They were perfect in their fellowship. And in that moment, in that dwelling together, in eternity past... They designed the Father to give a great gift to His Son. A bride. The church. All who would be His, who would believe in Him. And in turn, the Son gave to the Father, presented to Him sons and daughters from every tribe and every tongue and every nation who would believe in Him. And the Spirit presiding over it all, gave great glory through the sons of men to the Father and the Son. Salvation is a love story between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You and I are caught up, wrapped up in the outplaying of the drama of God's love for Himself. Have you ever thought about your salvation that way? It's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about Him. Salvation is a gift from God the Father to God the Son. And from God the Son to God the Father. And from God the Holy Spirit through the church to both Father and Son. We're caught up in a great love fest celebration of the Godhead. And Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. 
Now glorify me. And when you glorify me, I will glorify you. You've given me all authority over all flesh. And I have given eternal life to those who you have given to me. And this is eternal life. The last word. This is eternal life. That they know you. You may be sitting there saying, what is eternal life? How do I know I have eternal life? You must know God. I don't mean head knowledge only. Facts about God. I don't mean an emotional experience with God like a man might have when he looks at his newborn child. That's a experience. You've done it. You've held that baby. You've looked in his... That's a godly experience. Or laid on a blanket and looked at the stars and been overwhelmed with the greatness of creation. That's an experience with God. But that's not what this verse is talking about. Mere knowledge through facts or experience, but a relationship. How do I know it's about a relationship? How can I get that from this verse? All it says, Carlton, is that they know me, that they know you. The second part of the verse is the relationship. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And this is the relationship they must have with Jesus Christ, whom you sent. The relationship that is required is with Jesus Christ. There are going to be many of us evangelicals in the broad sense of the word who come to the last day. Mainline church people, closet church people, good people who come to the end and they stroll to the gate and say, We've made it to the celestial city. We have arrived. And the door will not be opened. Why? Well, some of them will arrive there by knowledge. All of life was wrapped up in knowing something about God. Theologians fit this category. There are a lot of theologians going to hell. Philosophers. Smart people. They look at the creation, they say, well, it's insane to believe that this came from just a random event. Something must have made this. That something logically looks like God. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-present. God is, God is God. He's sovereign. I believe that. And they're going to arrive to the end of their lives before God to say, I knew who you were. And they're going to quote the facts. You're holy. You're good. You're, you're all powerful. You're all knowing. You're everywhere. And God says, yes, but I don't know you. And they're going to say, I know you. And God's going to say, it doesn't matter if you know me. In that way. Depart from me. I don't know who you are. And others are going to arrive there through the evangelical church and the mainline church and 
other closet Christians and, and make sure you're not in this category. They're going to show up at the gate. They're going to say, we, we made it. We're at the celestial city. And they're going to immediately turn with tears and say, do you remember that service we were in? The preacher was preaching and I felt this thing come over me and I, I got excited about God and Jesus and doing some good things and oh, I'm so glad I got it. I was, another says, yeah, I wasn't in a church. I was off in the woods hunting and, and then this stillness came over the woods and I just thought about how great God is. Oh, it felt so good to know who God is. And then another's going to say, I didn't see it those ways, but fellas, let me tell you, I experienced laying out one night under the stars with my children the most awesome experience. Uh, we, as we stared at the stars and my children responded, I just fell in love with the God of this creation. And that God's going to say, depart. I don't know who you are. But we cast out demons in your name. And we preached in your name. And we felt a lot of things. I don't know who you are. And then there come, come those. They're tattered. They're worn. They're disheveled. But their head is high. Their gaze is sure. They're not going to care about the celestial city. And they're not going to care about the gatekeeper. Because they're going to look beyond the gates. And they're going to see face to face. The one they've longed to see. And they're not going to say, I deserve to be here because I did this or I did that. They're going to say, Jesus. After all these years, after this whole life, it's all about Jesus. And He's going to say, I know you. I know you. It's not Going to heaven is not going to the great spirit in the sky that we all hope we one day know. Going to heaven is coming home to a friend, a Savior, who we have known and been known by Him. And Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me now. The hour has come, and I want to glorify You. You gave me this authority over all flesh. And I've exerted the authority you gave me to give eternal life to everyone you gave me. I haven't lost any. They have eternal life because they know you through a relationship with me. Now glorify me with the same glory we had before the founding of the world. In this first five verses, we get the gospel through Jesus' prayer. I pray you got it. I pray you see it. I pray you understand it. I pray you not feel it only, but that you believe it. And that you cast yourself on Him. Desiring a relationship with Him. Let's pray. Father,
we have 